the guy who's been sitting up here with me and helping me lead today, uh, we haven't introduced him yet. His name is Brian Phillips. Brian is an associate pastor at Parish Presbyterian Church in Franklin. And Brian's a good friend, uh, has been a, a good colleague in Presbytery, and so I'm excited for him to bring God's word to you this morning. He's going to be preaching to us from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, so give Brian your attention as he declares God's word to us. Thanks, Brian. from Parish Presbyterian Church just down the road here in Franklin. Uh, It is a joy um, to be here with you and to bring God's word for God's people in our time of great need. And this is a time of great need, isn't it? In our country, in the life of the church of God in the PCA, this is a time to hear from the Lord and from his word. We need to be clear about one thing, and that's the gospel. It's of first importance, Paul says. And that's what we're going to look at as we jump in to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I will pray now for us and then have a reading of the Word. Lord, we praise you, Father, for who you are and how you have worked on our behalf through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now, Lord, come and do that great work of illumination by your Holy Spirit through your word to apply it to our hearts that we might have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that rejoice in such a way that we go forth from this place as proclaimers of the gospel of God in Jesus. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's Word as it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Dear ones, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. 
praise the Lord for his word. As I said, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning and to get to give you the gospel. (laughs) What a blessing it is to, to preach on the gospel. And there's one thing that we need to be clear about. It is this, the gospel of God. We, we need to be clear about the communication that we make and the message that we're trying to communicate, whether it's billboard signs on the interstate as you go along and you see those, those signs. Some are, are small print where you can't even see the, the words. Some are clear. We want to be clear, whether it's uh, clear headings on a a newspaper or or a website or in a sales presentation in a committee meeting or in the teaching of a classroom to students. We need to be clear with the message that we're trying to get across. But a lot of times that message can become diluted, kind of like the telephone game. If you've ever played that children, the telephone game when you're in a circle around uh, the room and one person begins and tells a message to the next. And and maybe it's just one word. Maybe it's a sentence and you try to pass that around the circle. And by the time it gets all the way back to the person that started it, Oftentimes, that message becomes diluted. It becomes confused and doesn't even sound like that word or that sentence. It's something completely different. We need to be clear about the message of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, wants to be purposeful. He wants to be intentional, as a good shepherd would. He has planted this church as we jump in right into the 15th chapter of this epistle. We see that Paul is a shepherd of this flock. He's planted this flock. He's evangelized this flock in this city. And he has come to plant this church. And as often happens in churches, we become confused and distracted, don't we? And we become much more like the world than we're called to be as the church. And so he writes this letter from Ephesus to this church in around A.D. 55 on his third missionary journey. And part of it's because they have questions Part of it's because of things he's heard about this church, the divisions among them. And he he addresses these things. And then he comes to chapter 15 and wants to be clear about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and particularly the resurrection. The death and the resurrection of Christ, which uh, for whatever reason was under discussion and... uh, There was much false teaching about it. And so his point is this. Since the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance for us, then we must place our faith in him by his grace. This is not so easy. As I said, it's easy to drift and for that message to become diluted and we drift into hot topics of the time and we we look at all these other things and Paul is calling us back to first principles in the message of the gospel. So our question is this, what is the gospel? That's a great question to ask. 
On this Lord's Day morning, it's three things we see from these 11 verses. One is this. He wants us to remember the gospel. The gospel remembered in verses 1 and 2. Then he explains the gospel in 3 through 8. The gospel explained to them and to us. And finally, the gospel proclaimed. He wants us to proclaim it in verses 9 through 11. He's reminding us. He's reminding us of what he has told us. He's reminding these saints in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. He's, he's shifting from uh, the spiritual gifts conversation that he's had in chapters 12 through 14 and the confusion that is swirling around those uh, views on the spiritual gifts inside the worship and community of the people of God. He is moving forward from the, uh, the addressing of the divisions and quarrels among them. There's sexual, sexual immorality that has creeped into this church, their pride. Uh, being those who have followed after Paul and Apollos and, and Cephas. He, he's addressed the, the matters that they've questioned him about. Marriage, singleness, food sacrificed to idols, head coverings, the Lord's Supper and how it should be administered, and yes, spiritual gifts. And he says in verse 1, I've reminded you, I'm reminding you even now of the first things. He's wanting to remind them, to make plain to them, to bring back to their attention what he had first preached to them, which was this in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says, this, this is what I preached to you at the very beginning. This is how I founded this church on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word for preached is to proclaim in an evangelistic manner. It's the evangel, the evangelism of the people. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is how he planted the church. As we see in Acts 18, he had evangelized the city and gathered the people to the hearing of the preaching of the gospel. He says, this is the message you've received. It's not just something I have made up out of thin air. It's a divine message with divine authority that you have received by faith in Christ and that you submit to. First, we, we must receive this gospel message as truth from God. This was not the message of a mere man with eloquent words of wisdom. This was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Secondly, he reminds them that they need to stand in this. In which you stand. This word here is a past tense with a continuing, completed, present, active, going on. It's... it's you have stood and you are continuing to stand in. 
This is both an encouragement to them and an exhortation to them. They were to remember how they stood in the gospel. And that was to spur them on to keep standing in the gospel. An encouragement that you have stood in the gospel by faith in Christ. And therefore, I exhort you to keep standing. Because this is a gospel that is from God to us. He reminds them, thirdly, and by which, verse 2, you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. You are being saved. You have been saved through this gospel, through Jesus Christ. This is not something you have drummed up to save yourself. It is the work of God. You see, this is a rescue operation. This is the good news. This is great joy. This is glad tidings. This is not following after me, Paul is saying. This is not following after Apollos. This is not following after Cephas. No, this is not following and standing in your own good works for your own righteousness before God to make yourself acceptable before Him. This is standing in another's work in your place. Thanks be to God. This is what you've received. This is what you stand in. And this is what is true about you. You are being saved. You know, it's so easy to become distracted as a church. I know you're in the middle of a, of a building project. <laughs> it's easy to become distracted. We, our church has been going through a building project. It's easy to become distracted. Distracted by all kinds of cares. Whether it's in our families, whether it's in the church. We are just like the Corinthian church in many respects, aren't we? That we get distracted from the thing that is most important. And Paul is calling this little church, this little church plant, to live differently than the world, but to live in the world. To receive this gospel by faith and stand in it and grow in it day by day. Is this true of you, Trinity Presbyterian Church? That you've received this truth, that you hear it week after week, but have you received it and stand in it and are being saved by it? Paul is wanting them to know this truth of the gospel, and so he explains it to them in a crystal clear manner. He gives a clear statement of the gospel here in verses 3 through 5 and provides the proof for this gospel. What is this statement? He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. He's saying, I did not just dream this up. This is something I received from the Lord. It's a divine message. It's not just a message among other messages. It is the message of life. And it's the center point of Paul's whole ministry. Here we have in verses 3 through 5, really a creedal statement. And J.N.D. Kelly, in his early Christian creeds, notes that there are several parts of Scripture that could be like creeds in our uh, Scriptures. We could look at Romans 1, 3 and 4. We could look at Romans 10, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 8, and uh, 1 Peter 3, 18. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, 
we have what Kelly says, this is manifestly a summary drawn up for catechetical purposes or for preaching. It gives the gist of the Christian message in a concreted form. You know, you, you could ask 10 preachers or 10 elders what the gospel is, and you might just get 10 different answers. Isn't that the truth? And here we have for us, in a nutshell, the gospel of God. He begins with the death of Christ. You notice this, that Christ died, that Christ came to die. We just celebrated Advent where we celebrated the very incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has come to die. Really, His humiliation encompasses His life and His death and everything in between. We see in the death of Christ, the humiliation of our Savior. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27 says, what? was Christ's humiliation. Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, and in being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. This humiliation of Jesus Christ is the very climax of his sufferings in his death, his death on a cross. You see, we see here summed up in this very first part of the gospel that Christ has come to die. And he has come to die for our sins which is according to the Scriptures. We see throughout the Scriptures, and this is mentioned as several times repeated, according to the Scriptures. We see throughout the, the Scriptures that God created man upright. But as Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, but they have sought out many schemes. God in Genesis 1 and 2 created man and put him into the garden and he brought Eve to man and they were, they, they were in the very presence of God with perfect communion. And then Genesis 3 happens. God had given them a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could eat of any other tree, but not that tree. And they went for that tree and ate of that fruit and rebelled against God and His holy word. And this act of sin caused all men to fall in sin under their federal head and representative Adam. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity or lack of transgression against the very law of God. And here we see it. The rebellion against God's good commands. As Adam and Eve eat that fruit and sin enters the world and death through sin. And so Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death has come. And Christ has had to come to die, to atone, to make atonement for our sin, to cover our sin according to the Scriptures. And here in Genesis 3.15, we see that first gospel, that first good news, 
and the curses on the serpent, on Eve and on Adam. As he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This seed that is prophesied, this this seed of the woman is prophesied about throughout Scripture. From Genesis all the way from Seth to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. To the prophets, just like you went through in your Advent season, Isaiah 7, as is Manuel, God with us, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son. The shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11, the wonderful counselor, king of kings, lord of lords, Everlasting Father in chapter 9 of Isaiah. He will come to be that suffering servant in Isaiah 53 that is crushed for our iniquities. John 1.29 says, This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul would say in Galatians 1.4 and 5, The Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. This is all according to the Scriptures. He continues with this creedal statement in verse 4, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. His humiliation went all the way to the grave where it confirms the death of our Savior as He defeats death with death itself. Put in this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea to confirm the truth of the gospel that Christ actually came to die. But the glorious hope, dear ones, is that he didn't stay in that grave. That's the hope of this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day, that it's Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday we come into this place to celebrate the resurrection as the centerpiece of the gospel. Oftentimes we emphasize his death, his death on the cross, and rightly so. But Paul wants us to see here that the centerpiece of the gospel should really be his glorious resurrection. Lorraine Bettner in his studies in theology says it so well. The resurrection of Christ was not only the first step in his glorification, It was one of the most important truths of the gospel. It was the proof that his work of redemption had been fully successful and that he had made a complete conquest of death. It showed that his work had fully satisfied the demands of the law and that death, therefore, had no further hold on him nor on any of those from whom, for whom he died. For the resurrection, dear ones, is the vindication of his perfect atoning work. Praise be to God. Paul is seeking to lay in the death and the resurrection in this creedal statement in verses 3 through 5, what he will say in the rest of this chapter of the benefits of the resurrection. He wants them to be grounded on this firm foundation of the death 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his humiliation and his exaltation. Richard Gaffin says it this way in his book, By Faith, Not By Sight. This brings us to a baseline conclusion following from the passage and reinforced by others all already noted. At the center of Paul's theology are Christ's death and resurrection, or expressed more broadly, his messianic suffering and glory, his humiliation and his exaltation. And this this glorious good news of of the resurrection of Christ was prophesied according to the scriptures all the way back in the Old Testament. We see it in in Job's declaration as he proclaims, he knows his Redeemer lives in Job 19.25 and in Daniel 12.2. And many of those who, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake from some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 25, as Isaiah promises of the resurrection that will swallow up death. In this time of COVID, when death is all around us and we see our fragileness as human beings under the curse of the fall, we rejoice in the hope of the resurrection today. That death is not the final word because His exaltation includes His reign over all earth and heaven. All His enemies will be cast before His feet. As, he, as Paul will go on to say in verses 24 and 27, and even death He will crush and take out the sting of death in verses 54 and 55 as He ascends in His glorious resurrected body to the right hand of the Father, which is our hope of a resurrected body. And He is our mediator between God and man as He prays for us with perfect prayers. What a creedal statement for us to know and believe. And He shows us the proof of that in His eyewitness accounts of this gospel. Four times he mentions in verses 5 through 8, appeared, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And in any good court case, a lawyer knows he he needs some eyewitness accounts for the case to be proven true. Paul puts forth four different areas for this to be proven. First, that Cephas, he appeared to Cephas and the twelve. More than 500 brothers he appeared to, secondly. And then to James, his half-brother and the apostles. And then finally, he says, to one who is untimely born, he appeared also to me. You remember in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is on his way to Damascus and he's knocked off his horse by the blinding light of the resurrected Jesus. And he realizes, as he thought in his righteousness, he was going to persecute the church. He realized he was persecuting the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. I was one untimely born and do not deserve to be apostle, an apostle. In this creedal statement and in this proof of the eyewitness accounts of this good news, Paul is showing us the centrality of the death and resurrection of Christ. He's calling the church to remember this. 
to stand on this, to continue be saved, being saved by it. This is not just an intellectual uh, activity this morning. This is an issue of the heart, of our hearts being captivated by this truth, by the centrality of the death and resurrection of Christ. Do you believe this? Is this true of you and of this church? It's acknowledging your sin and rebellion against the Lord and trusting Christ and His work alone. You see, as Paul explains this gospel, it spills over into his personal testimony. It's his personal testimony that is of grace. What is grace? That's the kind of word like the gospel that we just throw around. Grace is unmerited favor, yes. But it is also power in the lives of His people day by day to live for Him. We're saved by grace and we live by grace every single day of our lives. And that's what Paul knew. He says, I'm unworthy. I'm one untimely born. I am the least of all. I've had to work the hardest because I know myself. I know that I was trusting in my own righteousness. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians chapter 3. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. But all of that, he says, was filthy rags, rubbish. Because it was his own righteous pedigree before the Lord. If you're here today and you hear my voice, the voice of your Savior speaking to you, and you say, I'm trusting in myself, I'm trusting in my own righteousness, then lay it down at the foot of the cross. That's why He came to die. For Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, none are righteous. No, not one. And we are all enemies of God, Romans chapter 5, in our sin and rebellion. And Paul would say, I'm unworthy. So how was Paul an apostle? How was Paul called to do this? See in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. See, this is what grace has done. Grace has appeared, Titus 2, uh, 10 and 11, says grace has appeared to all through Jesus Christ, And this grace produces in us a transformed life, one of humility, one of love. And so Paul could go forth as a transformed man, saved by his grace, to then proclaim this good news that he has received. But this was not of his own power. It's the grace of God in resurrection power. This resurrection power that sets us free to proclaim it. You look at Ephesians 1, 19-20. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Philippians 3, he says, Paul says, I want that I may know know Him and the power of the resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, 
and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In the, in the next letter that he will write to Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, dear ones, Paul's personal testimony that spills out here is that the grace of God was poured out onto Paul's life and that great transforming work has only continued as he applies the gospel to every area of his life. And that's what he wants for these saints. And so he says in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He says, this is how we come before the Lord is through the gospel. And he transforms us in that gospel from death to life and that he sends us out. Notice here in verse 11, the word for preach here is the word for heralding the gospel, heralding the good news, like an announcer on the corner, heralding forth the good news. Paul brings forth the proclamation of the gospel. Simon Kistemacher says it this way on this passage. With this last sentence, Paul indicates that he is not interested in persons, but in the cause and effect of the gospel message. Paul desires nothing less than that he, the apostles, and anyone else proclaims the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The basis of Christianity is the doctrine of the resurrection. Without it, the Christian religion ceases to exist. That's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16, this is the power of God unto salvation. Dear ones, we have three ways to apply this to our own lives. One is this, Paul wants us to know and to believe the gospel. We can be assured of this as we look at our lives and say, Am I standing in the gospel? Am I continuing to be saved in the gospel? Is my life being transformed day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday? One other way we can see this is number two, we submit to the Lord in His rule and reign over all of our lives. And then finally, do you delight in sharing this gospel, proclaiming this gospel with all of your neighbors and friends and family and relatives? Is this something you delight in? That you delight in opportunity to share the gospel? Oh, dear ones, let's not have a deluded gospel that that goes around that telephone game and, and loses its message. Let's be clear with the gospel. Let's remember the gospel. And let's clearly explain it and be empowered by God's transforming grace to proclaim it to a lost and dying world who desperately need it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel that You come to save sinners by Your grace. And O Lord, we pray that as we come to this table, You would sanctify both Your Word and sacrament to us, that You would transform us into Your likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen.